From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Myself and the young people are ad idem on this one, whereby we just aren't into answering emails. I remember just hearing a massive shout from a doctor say, We have a breath! We have a breath! What's better than going with your mum or dad for the first time to the dentist and watching them having a great experience and leaving alive and happy? <laughs> Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, how to stay calm while you wait to see if you're nominated for an Oscar. The parents of murdered Natalie McNally appeal for help in catching her killer. And a day in the life of a busy GP clinic in Dublin. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's not having any issues staying calm in the face of possible glory. The musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show started unexpectedly with a question of semantics and supermodels. Is wagons uh, a curse word or not? I'm just trying to figure out if somebody says you're an awful wagon, is, does, that, is that, does that constitute, like an F-bomb is one thing. We know that that's a curse word. But there's a grey area, isn't there, sometimes with words where you say, like, langer. I know that in Cork you say langer and everyone goes, oh, I can't believe you said langer. Whereas in, in Dublin, langer doesn't, have a, doesn't resonate at all. Wagon is pretty universal. I hear people calling each other wagons for the crack, almost like saying, you're an awful wagon, and laughing. But then I've also overheard people saying, shit, that one's a wagon. And you go, okay, well, which one is it? I'm, I'm utterly confused. So it, this, it, it, what happens is when visitors to our shores, say from the UK, say supermodels, as they were called once upon a time, supermodels would be here. Kate Moss would be one. Uh, who else was Christy Turner? They used to hang around here for a little while during the, what was it, the 90s, thereabouts? Um, and they'd go to the clubs and I'm sure it was for uh, the love of the country slash tax reasons that they were here and they would be having the crack and enjoying life. And recently, Kate Moss was, uh, was asked, she turned 49 on Monday. She could knock 20 years off that looking at her in fairness. Uh, but anyway, she looked, she's, she's 49 and she was celebrating her birthday with an interview on, with British Vogue magazine. So they shared this clip on TikTok of a snippet from a previous interview, uh, which was published in 2021. Anyway, it shows Kate Moss answering a series of questions from her famous friends. And I'm thanking whom I'm thanking independent.e found this, in fairness. And uh, Christy Turlington asks Kate Moss, do you remember why we call you Little Wagon? And, <laughs> yeah, and where... We were when we started doing it. To which Kate Moss responds. We were in Ireland and we got a little bit tipsy at a wedding. And I think in Irish, wagon is drunk. So basically, we were all wagons because during that time we were all doing shows, drinking a lot of champagne and calling each other wagon. Okay. She's wrong, obviously. Uh, it doesn't mean being a little bit drunk, otherwise we'd all be. It, it, I think it, uh, it's gender heavy towards women, isn't it? You, you don't call a man a wagon, it's not fair to say. Uh, I've never heard a man be called a wagon. Equally, there's a word beginning with P and ending in K that you generally wouldn't call a woman. Such is the nature of uh, profanity, let's face it. Anyway, if anyone knows Kate Moss, tell her. It doesn't mean being tipsy at all. It just means either you're the best friend or the worst enemy. How about that? Dictionary definition of the wagon. Best friend, worst enemy. And we're done. Well, I'm glad we sorted that one out. Who wants to tell Kate? Hey, maybe we could email her. Bosses have resorted, according to the papers this morning, to sending their staff messages on Instagram because 
An increasing number of young employees ignore work emails. I was mocked at some length this morning for not responding to emails. I'm pretty poor as a responding as a respondent in terms of uh, responder, I should say, in 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 lots of things, but particularly emails. I find them. I don't really, I kind of half read them, don't get into writing them. Certainly I'm going to on my phone if I can help it. Maybe if I'm at a computer, which isn't very often, so not really. So myself and the young people are ad idem on this one, whereby we just aren't into answering emails. And this guy says that as more people seek empowerment in the workplace, employers have to adapt. And a simple example, which is quite basic and yet always destabilising for some leaders, is that younger staff don't read emails. And he no longer used email to deliver important messages to staff because he knew a significant proportion would not read them. Uh, to speak to my employees, I go to Instagram or LinkedIn. God, he must be desperate if you're trying to speak to somebody on LinkedIn. It works better for him. They don't even check emails sometimes. We have about 20,000 who we know don't even uh, check one email per month. They're 25 years old. They don't care. The 55-year-old man agreed it was a wake-up call for employers struggling to recruit as he addressed the phenomenon of quiet quitting where fed-up workers do the bare minimum required of them. Sure, look, we all know a few people who've been quiet quitting for years, long before that expression was ever invented. But that's for another day. Meanwhile, he said increased remote work and a greater desire for a work-life balance had forced executives to become creative. And that's what's happening. That probably explains why that Nigerian prince never got back to me after I emailed him my bank account details. Must look him up on Pole Insta. Anywho, there was a Foo Fighter spotted in Dublin 4 recently. Dave Grohl was in town during the week. Again, independent.a, busy paper today. Uh, he was in town in Dublin. He was in Rowley's Bistro in Ballsbridge for dinner. And he met some people in, in among the staff and the, uh, this, the, the, the part owner, Paul Cartwright, said Mr. Grohl was very friendly, very amenable and a lovely fella. I got that impression. I've only interviewed him twice, but by remote. It was once by Zoom on TV, uh, if not twice, and once uh, on telephone here. And he seemed like a very amenable fellow. Anyway, he was in town. He was having um, his dinner and he stopped for photos and whatever. And among the people he stopped for was Sligo native Carmel Brenny, who I think I might know if it's the same Carmel Brenny, uh, who was having dinner with a friend and bumped into Grohl. Turns out Carmel Brenny, Brenny's late brother, Joe, worked as lights designer as a lighting designer and his last job was with the Foo Fighters isn't that lovely and they obviously uh, met and uh, Joe or Joe Lights as he was known was diagnosed sadly with cancer and missed out on the European leg of the band's tour as he was receiving uh, chemotherapy but uh, he died from the illness I'm sorry to say in 2009 at the age of 42 uh, but it was quite nice that uh, Carmel met uh, Dave uh, in passing like that I wonder did she have a chance to tell uh, Dave Grohl about uh, Joe uh, either way and uh, no one knows why Dave Grohl is in town. He's uh, celebrated his 54th birthday on Saturday. Um, and it remains a mystery as to why he's in Dublin. Either way, if he's here, he's welcome. He seems to be one of the good guys, that's for sure. Mr Grohl, on behalf of Ireland, Mr Turberty welcomes you. But wait, it's time to sound the controversy klaxon. To me, strawberries are red and they're delicious. And particularly when they're in season. But the white strawberry is something we need to be watching out for because it's it's coming. The white strawberry, covered in red seeds, have been put on the shelves in certain shops in the UK. And this is a variety said to be equally as sweet as the traditional red strawberry with an aroma of pineapple and notes of vanilla. White pearl strawberries, that's what they're called. They were created in Japan after seeds 
from the countries white berries were crossed with the red variant of the fruit. They're apparently, uh, they have a unique flavour, incredible appearance, and should be best eaten at room temperature and will likely make an appearance at Wimbledon. I don't like it. I don't like change. I don't want change in my fruit. I want to see red strawberries. I don't want to, I don't want to eat like a, a, you know, a, a black banana or, you know, I just, some things just need to just leave it. But they won't leave it, of course. They can't. They're at it and they're messing with it and they're shoving stuff and seeds and things. And I'm sure they're delicious, but I'm going to I'm just going to stick with better the strawberry. You know, that's what I say. I'll try it. My indecision is final and sticking with all matters food related. Cake in the office. OK. Cake in the office. OK. I don't know what it is. I have a thing about cake in the office. I cannot stand cake in the office. I don't want it. I don't like to see it coming in the trap. My poor friends. I, I remember one time somebody came into, I think it was the green room before. It was in the afternoon, getting ready for the late late. And somebody came in with the, with the cake and saw my face and said, what? Looked over their shoulder almost to say, what? What? What's wrong? You look, you look horrified. I kind of said, well, you are doing something really nice. And yet I, I, I can't. I can't handle the cake in the office. I, it's one of those peculiar things and I can't, the fuss, everyone gathering around, the out-of-tune happy birthday, uh, maybe the, and the cake is always a really nasty looking thing from Tesco or something and then you'll hear, and then you might hear the, 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 un, the, the, the uncorking of a warm bottle of Prosecco and you just go, oh lads, no, I can't be dealing with it at all. Now we'll go out for a scoop or a, a cake or tea or, you know, for sure, but it's just dragging it in the office. It's all over the floor now. Anyway, over in the UK, a little digression there. Over in the UK, the cake in the office, it, they're saying, should be viewed like passive smoking because it's uh, it's an unhealthy thing for people to be eating cake in the office. So I'm, I'm, I think that's excessive. Now. I think if somebody wants to have cake in the office, by all means, have it. Just A, don't invite me, and B, please don't invite me. And otherwise, it's fine. Enjoy. But, but what am I supposed to do with this cake that I brought in just for you, Ryan? Well, I guess I'll just leave it in the shopping bag then. Or maybe I should send it over to the people at Penguin Ireland. Prince Harry's book, which is... Uh, it was only a week out at this stage. According to Michael McLaughlin, who's the MD of Penguin Random House Ireland, a very nice fella with it, said the sales of... Wait till you hear it. 20,584 copies, which in book sales is enormous. Uh, they sold this amount of copies in Ireland just in a week. Yeah, exceptional at any time, as he says, but in January, that's unprecedented. The largest ever one-week sale of any non-fiction book in the last 20 years. Well, Republican Ireland is dead and gone. It's with O'Leary in the grave. Who knew? I kind of did have an idea this was happening when I, when I caught my mother one day. <laughs> Who was getting married? It was Kate and William were getting married. And I called into her one morning. By, just by a bit of a sort of drive-by. Curtains closed. That's very unusual. 11 o'clock in the morning. Caught red-handed. My mother, Catherine, sitting there with three old pals, bottle of something and, and, and nibbles, all, all gathered around the TV watching. I said, if your father knew what you were doing this morning with the royal family... <laughs> then I realised, as I told everyone about it, oh, yeah, my mother did the same. Yeah, same here, same, 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 same. I think we have a quiet secret, not love, but fascination with them, let's face it. Anyway, sure, look, we're all friends now. Of course we are. 
At least until they start telling everyone how the British actress Farrell and Gleeson got COVID at the Critics' Choice Awards, eh? Anyway, better leave the newsings there, I think, before the cake goes soggy. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, the parents of Natalie McNally, Bernie and Noel, spoke to Claire about their daughter, who was murdered in Lurgan, Northern Ireland, last month. People might remember the 18th of December. It was a Sunday. That was when the World Cup final was on and you were watching that together, Noel, weren't you? Yeah, that's correct. We, since we called around our house on Sunday afternoon and then we sat down and watched the World Cup final from 3 o'clock and it went on a bit, you know, went on the extra time and penalties and then it took a while to hand out the trophy. She, was, she just kept saying, you know, how long was it taking to hand? You give so many awards out and before they give out the cup, which was such a good mood, you know, and that's all we talked about on air. Uh, she sat here and then she, she was no hurry to go anywhere. She just said she was going to work the next day. But she, so she got up and she said, I'll see you tomorrow, Mommy, or Tuesday. Because she had to go for a scan on Tuesday for her baby. So we knew she'd be very on Tuesday at least. So we thought nothing of, you know, so that she wouldn't be very on Monday, you know. But yeah. a couple of hours after she left our house, she drove home and someone came into the house and murdered her. Your memories, Bernie, of that last Sunday with mm-hmm. Natalie. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, we had our dinner as usual. I make the Sunday dinner and with the two of us as the match was on and she was so delighted then that, that Lionel Messi had got the cup. She was really happy, you know, with what he'd achieved and we all were and she was so happy about that and happy and we were all looking forward to Christmas and she was and I was going out now. I'm always giving her a thing and she, I was if you want to eat any wrapping paper, she says, Yes, mommy and I can give her a wee plant and a on a card, I'd give her a Christmas card and she was smiling and looking at the Christmas card. And I remember sitting at the table, what? Smiling at the card and she was going and she's out. And she put on, she'd with the file and she'd the boots off. And I was keep laughing. I said, Natalie, she'd check the boots at the file. Natalie, they'd be melting, you know, we think, you remember. And yeah. church, she got, she put her coat on and she, and she says, Mommy, that's the, the memory I have. Her hands was full going out the door and she did we, our dog, River. And she says, Come on, we're going home to the cats. And, Mommy, I'll see you Monday or Tuesday, and that's and that's where the goodbye would have been five days out of seven, you know, with us. Yeah, was, because you'd always see her the next day or hear from yes, her the next day. Yes, yes, and that's what. Because Noel, Noel was saying there, Bernie, that you knew that Natalie was going to be busy on the Monday, so you didn't yes. really expect no, to hear from her. No, no, I didn't think anything of it, and didn't. And I said, well, Tuesday she'll be straight here, you know, from the scan. She'll come here straight, as I know she would, as she did before. And you know, in your head, you say, I'll have the dinner and all ready, and. You know, she'll be, you know, it'll be a long day for her and uh, not not in a million years did we think, you know, she would be lying there for day and murdered like not. And when did you hear, when did you know something was wrong? Well, it was um, the Monday evening, or Monday, coming into Tuesday morning, it was at half four in the morning, there was some rapping at the door and out with a wee dog and it barked and I said, no, I said, there's somebody that I said, oh, no, the dog's here, you know, the dog's just jumpy and then Noel says Noel says no he says and Noel got up and he looked out the window he says good there's two girls at our door so we Noel run down and I run after him and then these two girls and they said they're police officers and as you see on TV you never think it's ever going to happen they tell you to sit down and you know it's not good like and then they say have you a daughter Natalie and you know got a dress or dinner and then they tell you Natalie's dead and you just it's just unbelievable it's just kind of not could not take it in, you know. I could not believe. 
And then the next uh, thing we just remember is the house been full. You know, you just thought it's a blur then. Yes. All our relatives arrived. And, but no, and I can't imagine, and I'm sure you could never no. have imagined prior no, to this. No, and you see it on TV and your heart goes out, you know, to anybody that happens to so you. say, oh my God, how do you... And even the, the police woman at Key, how do they do that? What a job. What, do you know what I mean? It's it's so awful and, and it's... It's like a, a nightmare that's never ending, you know, now. And it's, you know, you never dream that that, you know, was going to happen to your family. Like yeah. it's just... I, I mentioned there that Natalie was 15 weeks pregnant and you, yes. were, you were all very excited about that. Oh, we were over the moon, over the moon and all our plans and she had plans and she was so happy. I never, as her daddy said, Sunday night she was here. I never seen her so content, you know, she was so happy and content and, and everything, all the future. Next year was going to go be a, such a brilliant year for us, you know. My family and her brothers were so, they were all uncles and, oh, babysitting Judy and, you know, all this. And it was all the plans and it's just all now, that's all gone. And we're grieving for Natalie. I I don't think it's even hit us that, you know, we've lost this wee grandson too. And it's just... No, I, I was saying to Bernie there that I can't imagine what that moment is like at half four in the morning, nor do I ever want to experience what it's like. But then you had to go and identify Natalie with your son, Declan, and that is something that no parent or brother should ever have to do. But I know that you you want people to know just how violent the attack on Natalie was. Yes, Claire, that's correct. Uh, Whenever I had to go down to identify, we had to drive down to Belfast to, to identify Natalie's body, and it was just uh, the, the coroner comes out, and just like you see on TV, and he says, We're going to just show you Natalie's body here and what to expect, and we're going to come out. But what I've what I seen, you, you couldn't be prepared for that. Like, you know, he gave her an awful death. You know, he, he battered her to death. He gave her, hit her over the head with some blunt instrument. He must have strangled her. And then stabbed her to death. It wasn't at the time we heard she was just stabbed to death. You know, as if it was maybe some fall night or argument. But this person's come in and give her a horrific death. Uh, it was really, really hard to see. And in fact, I, whenever they showed me Natalie, I had to look three or four times there just to, to be absolutely sure. Sorry, you know. We know that the PSNI released that footage, the CCTV images of a man in the area of her house on the Sunday and they want to question that person about her um, death. Now they say, the detectives who are investigating this, Noel, we see this, they say that she was targeted and she might have known her killer. What do you want to say today to anyone who thinks that they might know who that person is? Well, all I have to say is if you think you know, or even you may be wrong, but if you think you know who this person is, you have to go to the police. There's no other way about it. This and give this person up. This person is a monster, and you can't have any loyalty to this person. This person has killed our daughter, a lovely wee girl, and if he can kill Natalie, he can kill anyone. And this person, if this person kills again, it's going to be in your conscience that you haven't given this person up. Just the slightest wee bit of information could maybe, you know, crack this case and take this fellow off the street. But this fellow is very, very dangerous. And Bernie, this is why you're talking about this to yes. me and to others today in the media, because it's a, it's a really hard thing to do. But it you is. want this person brought yes, to justice. Yes, it is. Yes, it's, it is hard. And I said, well, the worst thing that you could happen in life has happened to us. So 
do an interviews and things like that. It's not, you know, it is hard, but I'll do it for Natalie, you know, to, to get this person off, out of society. He doesn't belong in society. He does not. Bernie and Noel McNally, parents of Natalie, who was murdered last month, talking to Claire Byrne this morning. Colin Barred, the writer-director of the hugely successful Irish film on Colleen Kuhn, spoke to Ray Darcy this morning as possible Oscar and BAFTA nominations loom. Congratulations on all the success of on Colleen Kuhn. Um, is, it, is it unbelievable in your world or expected? Uh, well, this, this is my first film, Ray, so I had nothing to kind of go, <laughs> go on, you know, prior to this. Um, so I guess unexpected, probably more than nothing else, but... Yeah, I mean, it's been an amazing year. It's like crazy, you know. It's essentially been a sort of adventure that I've been on with my wife, yeah. who's also the producer of the film, Keona Nicruli. So, um, yeah, our house has just been team Colleen Kuhn, team Quiet Girl for the last 12 months and more. So, um, yeah, it's just been amazing. Like, I'm just so grateful to, like, particularly to the audiences, you know, like all the people who came to see us. Uh, in Ireland and the UK, like it's it's just been phenomenal, you know. And it moves people. Your movie moves people. Yeah, yeah. People tend to have a similar reaction, <laughs> particularly at the end of the film, um, which is exactly the reaction reaction I had when I first read the, the book that the the film is based mm. on, which is which is Foster by Claire Keegan. So like, I was I was in tears at the end of that, and you know I just I just had this very clear vision of how how to you know, adapted to 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 the big screen, and um, yeah, I just I felt like you know if we can capture like even like seventy percent of what Claire created in, in Foster in the film, then I thought we would have something that would move people, and that thankfully seems to be the case. Like people seem to need their their Kleenex at the end of the at the end of the film. And you you mentioned the audiences in the UK, um, and, and there's a language barrier there. So the fact that it has cut through that. Uh, is testimony to the strength of the story and the movie and the direction and the acting. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, it's we're very proud of the film. Um, you know, we we kind of really have always really believed in it, I guess. But it's also, there's, you know, audiences are changing as well. It's like, you look at Bong Joon-ho, who directed Parasite, and, you know, they obviously won Best Picture mm-hmm. there a few years ago at the Oscars and in his Korean speech, movie, yeah. Korean, yeah, so Korean, and... Um, he, he he said in his speech about you know if he was speaking to audiences around the world and he said if if you can get over that one inch barrier that is subtitles there's a whole world of cinema waiting for you and yeah. I do feel like their audiences are more receptive to that idea you know that they're they're willing to sort of engage with with subtitle films like even people watch Netflix now and they'll be watching stuff that's even in the English language and they'll still have subtitles on. I was going to say then, it, it's probably because of streaming that people are more accepting of subtitles. It definitely helps. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, think about all the things like Squid Game and Dark or whatever, all these different massive TV shows that have come through the likes of Netflix and Amazon and so forth. With, with, with subtitles. You know, it's sort of yeah. normalised subtitles, yes, I guess. Yeah, and people yeah. have realised that there is all this great stuff out there, you know, that just happens to be in a different language to what, what they're speaking every day. Now, before we get to the nominations and, and all of that, um, so it was released, re-released, and is it a third re-release now or is it a second re-release? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what, what you call it. Um, yeah, so like we, we were released last year in May and we ran for 
It was in Irish cinemas for over six months. And then it was brought out again over Christmas by the likes of the IFI and the Lighthouse um, and the Stella, I think, in Ratmines. They were doing like their kind of favourite films of 2022. Yeah. And our film it happened to do really well over Christmas. Like it was selling out. So they're, it's still playing in those cinemas. <laughs> right. and, now, and now from this Friday, it's being opened in, I think, over... 40 cinemas, the, all the Omniplex cinemas are bringing it back and there's a bunch of other regional cinemas I think are doing it as well. So, yeah, it's it's mad. It, it, mad. Yeah, yeah, br- brilliant. And uh, it's available to stream on Apple and I see it's available to stream on IFI at home as well, um, which is a nice service and people would be good to support that because it's, it's a home service, obviously. Uh, so, uh, what's your understanding now? I know you, this is your first experience of it. So, uh, the the... the, the the voting starts, as in from last night, as in the campaigning stopped. Is that it for the Oscars? So the voting finished uh, last oh, night. Oh, finished last yeah. night. Okay, right. Yeah, okay. and it's only it's only a very short voting window, so it's only five days that Academy members can vote. Um, so it's all the time prior to those five days was all the real campaigning, you know. So we would have been over in LA four times, I think, in the last two months. Um, and we would have been holding screenings specifically for academy members mm. and you know, meeting all the members as many as you can and so forth, and just to, you know raise the profile of the film and and get people to watch it. But um, so basically, we're on the short list, right? So that's fifteen films have been selected yes. from around the world, and five are going to be chosen, yeah. um, and that's announced next Tuesday. Right. Yeah, so, so <laughs> but the thing is, like, the voters, anyone who's voting in this category, they have to watch all 15 films. So you can do all the campaigning you like, in a way. If you, if your film, is, if the voter doesn't like your film, then they're mm. not going to vote for it, you know? Mm. So it's kind of an even an even playing field in that regard, and that you know that they have to watch each of the 15. And, and, then, and they have the option of watching it in a cinema or watching it at home, do they, on, on, on their own telly? Yeah, so, like... You obviously would, would prefer had, you would prefer them to watch it in the cinema, I would imagine. Yeah, and mo- most of the voters we've met much prefer that they yes. they, uh, they make a point of going to the screenings. Yeah, yeah. So like we set up a screen, we had all these screenings set up through our distributor in the US um, and our, our publicist over there. So the whole campaign actually is really like we're so grateful to Screen Ireland and TG Cahar and um, and IFTA as well. Like we couldn't have done this whole campaign without them and, mm. and our US distributor. But yeah, the voters can go and they can watch it on on the big screen, and we would have been there doing Q and A's and meeting them. And you know, you have to put on a bit of a reception as well. You have to give them a bit of food afterwards and <laughs> right. a glass of wine or whatever. Um, but uh, but they can also watch it. Like the Academy has its own version of like a Netflix. It's, mm. like, it's like a portal where they can watch all of these films. You know, mm. but I do think most of them try and get out and get the free food the, and the cinema experience it. as well yeah so you mentioned yeah. TG Carr there and then they say that this is their dream goal to get an Irish language film to the Oscars so you're on the long list uh, next Tuesday the, the, the five movies who are nominated for an Oscar will be announced where will, you, where will you be when that phone call comes through and what way does it work do you have to wait and just watch it the same as everybody else or what, how does it work so basically it's an it's a it's an announcement that goes out on a like a live stream online. Yeah. So I think it's five thirty AM LA time it starts. So that's uh one thirty here I think. Um so yeah, it'll we're gonna we're gonna gather together as much of the kind of crew of our film as possible and whatever happens, whether we 
whether we get through or not, we're going to like just raise a glass and um, we're going to watch it in the in the Stella there. I think in in Ratmine, it's just we're going to have a look at nice. it there. And, so uh, that's that's see, see what that's lunchtime next Tuesday. You'll all be gathered in the Stella in Rathmines. Uh, and we, yeah. and they'll have the facility to stream the announcement up onto the big screen. Is that is that the plan? That's the plan. Yeah. Okay. The remarkably calm-sounding Cullum Barrett, writer-director of On Colleen Cune, talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon. Janine Edgeworth has self-published her first book, and she joined Ryan Tuberley this morning to talk about how it came about. I've always loved books like. The Famous Five, you know, Blyton, Babysitter's Club, all of them. I've always read books. Yeah. I never thought writing was something I could do. I just didn't think you could be a writer. Yeah. I didn't think you could. I just thought you were kind of born, you know, a singer or you are born. A, it doesn't happen to normal people. So then I started tinkering away. I always enjoyed it in school. And my teacher was a huge support. My English teacher, she was fantastic. Name her. Irene Donegan. Yeah, everyone, everyone needs <laughs> a Miss Donegan. Don, Mrs. Donegan in their lives. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, she that, was that teacher was... She really, yeah really kind of pushed me and encouraged me and I got a big bull of bus one day for one of the stories I couldn't believe it I was too nervous to read out so my friend Louise had to do it for me um, but it really encouraged me yeah. and I thought oh maybe I'm okay you know and you know being Irish you're like oh god am I okay so it just kind of grew from there and then I got really serious about it maybe okay. 10 years ago Isn't it amazing Janine that you can you can have the effect of a, a bula bus that you call it. I haven't heard that for 100 years <laughs> but for, It's uh, only and, Irish I know Sospiog as well there somewhere but, it, but that, that encouragement from a teacher it was um, huge. You know, it really can, it can guide you in a totally different direction to the one you might have been going in. Yeah. You know. Talk to me about your, your mum, will you? So my mum, Helen, yeah, she passed away a week after my seventh birthday. Um, she had cervical cancer. I thought it was leg cancer till I was like 20. I'm not even messing with we'll, we'll, we'll go back to that. We'll come back was, to that. It was all very taboo then. Um, you were very little. Very little. Yeah. How old was your mum? Um, she was 40. Oh, God, help her. Okay. Yeah, so it was... I mean, back then, it it was bereavement was different then, and grief for children was different. It wasn't something like there was, there was no. Now there was probably counselling services, but I didn't avail of any. It was kind of just yeah. more get up and get on with it, um, not in a cruel way, but just in it was the way my dad knew, you know, and he was obviously grieving. He was. I had a fantastic childhood, so it worked in a way. You know, um, talking to Brian Cox, the actor on Friday Night on TV. He, he's 80 years old. He still remembers the day his father died and yeah. how he was plunked in front of the TV, he was saying. And that, that probably makes him, to this day, still watch TV. He associates it with that day to this day. Um, you look at uh, the Prince Harry story and how he was told his mother's dead. He was kind of given a pat on the back and told, you know, almost them's the breaks, you know. It was a very different, and you've just described yourself. I mean, you probably didn't go to, did you go to your mum's funeral? I don't know if no, you. No, no. Did you go to school soon I after she died? I think I went that day, actually. I think I was speaking to my auntie yesterday and she was saying, yeah, like we just brought you off to school and someone on the yard said, how's Helen? And my auntie just said, yeah, no, she's grand. Because I didn't know and she, my auntie was so traumatised that, you know, you just kind of, you got on with it. And I, I went to school, I, I'm almost certain it was on the, the same day. Um, and it just, but it was... It was just what was done and they just wanted you to be okay and it's just... Yeah, I mean, there was no, yeah, there's no badness. Just, they didn't send you yeah, to school saying, so you must go to school yeah. even if you're upset. They're oh, saying... No, I was a little wrecked. I had to probably get rid of her for today. <laughs> um, no, it was more so just what they t- felt was right back then. There is no right or wrong when it comes to grief, childhood bereavement. No one knows what, you know, 
what the right route is. That's but right. back then it really was. You just get up and you just get on with it. Yeah. What did you do? You remember of your mum because you were so young? Do you it's, have any flashes of, of memory? That's exactly what it is, Ryan. It's just flashes. Yeah. It's little flashes of moments where her say in the Phoenix Park or flashes. Um, anyone that's lost someone, you, you you nearly look at photographs and you're trying to nearly kind of bring them to life as you're standing. You're like, do I remember that moment or was that just a photograph? Um, I remembered her voice. She'd quite a kind of husky voice and a laugh and my aunt has the exact same voice and laugh um, I do remember that Are you becoming your mother do you think? Um, we often become our parents Yeah like people would say they'd see similarities um, and I mean she was she was funny and she was kind and you know she was a good person um, I don't think I could ever aspire to be that good What, what about books words education she, and humour? She loved reading She's a huge reader um, she also wrote but more as a hobby and reading was really her thing she really enjoyed books Okay so that that can just permeate in, if it's in the yeah. house you know tends to follow through I'm looking at this wonderful photograph here uh, of that's you and your mum Yeah uh, You look like you might be about two or three or maybe two and a half or something like that Yeah Now this does not bode well because you're reading a book that's upside, upside down, down. I, I mean, That's the image of me upside down book. It's a book about the alpha <laughs> but there's, I can see there's a lovely mother it, and daughter was, moment um, here that photograph was just, oh, it's one of my most treasured possessions now. I yeah. actually only got it a, a few years ago and it, I, I think my aunt gave it to me, but I was like, wow, it really... You didn't know it existed before. didn't know it existed. It, and again, like you say, somebody can reach into a drawer and pull a photograph that's been gathering dust and say, and give you something really, that was very precious picture yeah. of that. I was tempted to superimpose a better book to it than the ABC <laughs> upside down, you know, something more poignant, but um, no, no. it is as it is. Yeah, it's a gorgeous photograph and I really... I, I love looking at it. It makes me happy yeah. when I look at it. Whereas for a long time, looking at pictures of my mom would have kind of made me feel sad. Yeah, of course. This one makes me feel happy. Now, that's a lo- lovely thing to have. And, and um, when, when, you, when you're trying to navigate uh, grief at, at that age, eight, nine, ten, eleven, 10, um, what, what do you do? Because it can, it can manifest itself in so many different ways. It could be a headache or a knot in your tummy or, you know, it could be a breakout in terms of, personality or temperament how did you do you think uh, respond physiologically or to um, I think it was more physical when I was really? younger it was tummy pains um, trips to the doctor things like that straight after um, kind of in the year after it was more physical things you know and then my dad would obviously panic and bring me to doctor with any little kind of thing I was saying um, Let, let's go let's, let's, let's hold the horses here for a sec because I think stom- tummy pains said tummy pains stomach pains th- that is almost a, a form of heartache you know when you when you're when you're cramped and you're just because you you're you're in pain yeah. your body is 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 in pain especially when you're young and you can't explain it and you can go to 10,000 doctors and they'll say you're just hurting exactly. essentially so what what did the doctor say to you when you went with your stomach pain I, you know i can't remember the exact conversations yeah. of what it was but i just remember it was the trips to the to the doctor soon after it was tummy pains which still I would if I'm ever kind of we all get a bit anxious now and again and it would be my you know you'd feel your tummy yeah not your stomach but it was more physical things and then it kind of went into a fear of something happening to my dad which is when I was writing my book I realised that's a huge thing I never realised tell me about that Um, I was just terrified something would happen to him Okay. You know, now he's at home with the flu today, and I told him take two paracetamol, your grand. So I've obviously gotten over that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's like, a big day with Ryan, Dad, your grand. Um, I apologise to your dad, by yeah. the way, for dragging you away. <laughs> I don't even think he can listen. God uh, love him. Uh, God I'll help. have to play it back later. Go on. Um, yeah, so it was. It was just a profound... He was a, a chef and he worked. Um, you know, back then he'd done the, the, the night jobs, crazy and day, hours, crazy hours, mm. and I would be like, 
terrified, lying in bed, terrified something would happen to him. Yeah. You know, and then my dad remarried and I had a stepmom and it was, I had a great childhood. You know, they were both very supportive and it was a lovely upbringing, um, which worked as a good band-aid. But like grief, it, it bites you it it, does. and it hits you when you don't expect it. And it follows you around like a bad smell sometimes. It really does. It's a gift that keeps on giving. It, yeah. it comes at you. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything of, of your mum's that you can look at and, and keep any? Do you know what? That was always things. We mightn't have had much talk over the years, but I always had things. So I remember my, my dad and my stepmom, I did, you know, were conscious to give me things. So I had like my mum's ring and I had a jewellery box and stuff like that. And only now I'm realising I got quite obsessed with them. So I'd be afraid not to wear the ring. I'd be, the photograph had to be beside the bed it was like that was my connection to her even though I couldn't yeah. speak about it too much it was more the things and I remember actually with bereavement and when you lose someone young in my experience it's people pointing stuff out to you that you didn't even realise so someone would say to me I remember my aunt saying to me you might not always need to wear your mum's ring and I was like what? and I get what she means now because I don't have it on me today yeah. it's like as if when you, the more you're healing the less the things are such a yeah, that's a really good way of putting yeah. it. And, and so you're you're not uh, almost um, obsessing. Obsessing, yeah. Uh, you, you can replace obsession with, mistake it for emotional attachment. Yes, but definitely. Whereas actually there's something, is my dad going to die? Is yeah. the ring going to get lost? You know, all these things. Whereas actually yeah. you have to, don't you? Just and you never connected it. Like I never talked to myself. It sounds, I feel silly saying it now, no, but no, it's the no. truth. I didn't think, oh, I'm I really fearful over my dad because of my mum. It, it didn't even link. Yeah. Or obsessing over my mum's jewellery and stuff. I d- the ring, it didn't, it didn't link to me. Uh, you seem very grounded now. Like you're almost laughing at it. I got the sense you've got a great sense of humor. Yeah, well, Who do, do you read? Who do you like to read? I love oh, Roddy Doyle. There I love Marion yeah, Keyes. Yes, I love yes, them all. Yes. Cecilia Hearn and then obviously Claire Keegan. Does, I would read anything yeah. really. That's self-published author Janine Edgeworth talking this morning to Ryan Turberty. Janine's book, The Thing About Feathers, is available now. Today with Clareburn reporter Eleanor Rourke visited the Aylesbury Clinic in Talla in Dublin to see how a GP practice manages to cope with the current crisis in healthcare. Here's Dr Andrew Jordan from Evelyn's report. Now who's next there please? We're roughly 40 years here. We were across the way in a, your standard three-bedroom semi. And then in 1998, we came across to this. We we built this building. It's a purpose-built building. And how many GPs do you have here now? Well, different times we have different numbers. But a lot of times in the mornings, we'd have up to eight doctors seeing patients. And it seems have... like so many, you know, and yet you'll tell me, the patients will tell me they have to wait to see a doctor and you have to wait to see patients. Well, we've always tried to provide a same-day service. I have to confess that there in the few weeks leading up to Christmas and over the last couple of weeks, we're having great difficulty in providing that service. Because of demand? Yeah, the demand is huge. Flu, COVID, the respiratory well, conditions we hear about. In, uh, in the lead up to Christmas, it was a mix and gather and everything. Once we got Stephen's Day, we had this phenomenal rise in RSV and streptococcal type infections. Now that has been changed and we're now seeing a rise in flu and in COVID. So that's Dr Jordan. And then you went outside and you spoke to some of the patients who were there. That's right, Claire was there on Monday morning. A small line had formed by eight o'clock and the patients I spoke to, of course, praised the care being offered by the clinic. They know the clinic well. Many of them have been patients there for years. But they're also frustrated generally at the reality for everybody of trying to access GP care at the moment. Well, here, so here's some of the patients that I met in the queue and some who turned up to get appointments for their friends and that kind of network as well. But they talk about how access is difficult, particularly at the moment. 
you have to come to make the appointment and if you're not here by this time in the morning then you won't get an appointment for today. So you knew you had to be here after half seven to get an appointment yeah. for today? Yeah, you have to be here between half seven and eight. Maybe some mornings if the queue is not too bad, if you were here before half eight, maybe you would get an appointment. So you got an appointment for what time today? For 3.30. What do you think of it all? I think it's very hard on people. Mum was sick a couple of weeks ago and she doesn't drive. She had to walk here, make her appointment, walk back home and then walk back later on in the day then for her appointment. I suppose it's not the fault of anybody if they haven't got the staff, like, do you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, the system is, it's crazy. So you're here this morning and when do you hope to be seen? Are you hoping to get an appointment for today? No, it's it's no way. No way you'll get an appointment today? No. When you don't know when you're going to get your appointment? No. That's why emergency is so full always. Because, sorry, it's not people who belong to emergency, they're half of them. Because people cannot wait for a doctor. It's difficult if you want some doctor, like Dr. Mayor or Dr. Quinn. The rest you can get one, three days. And the rest it's two weeks. It's better than it used to be, to be fair to this yeah. surgery. It used to be a case of forget about phoning, you know, Monday to Friday, I don't even bother. Once you're here in person to make an appointment, it's fine. But If you walk in now, would you get an appointment? Yeah, oh yeah. For today? Oh, not for today. Maybe later on today, okay. if you're lucky. But it depends if you want to see your own GP or not. So you might have a relationship with the GP yeah. to get to see them can be trickier. Oh yeah, it could be, you could be talking next week. It's not ideal, of course. You, know, you have a relationship with your GP and he knows your ins and outs, as it were. You, know? you don't have to explain oh, everything. That's it. You don't have to start from square one, you know. And those pressures that we heard outlined by the patients there, the medical teams are feeling it. Dr Jordan told you about that. But other members of the clinical team there, Evelyn, the frontline staff, they're the first point of contact at the surgery. And we know it can be tough for them because sometimes patients will take out their frustrations on them. Indeed, and I spent time just sitting there with the management, the admin team there from the receptionist meeting patients to the practice managers and, you know, they just work so hard. They are flying along doing their best and they say, well, the vast majority of their patients are an absolute pleasure to deal with. They know them so well. They say there is a growing cohort who can be difficult to deal with. Uh, they say the group is growing and they can be very vocal when they're frustrated using abusive language. There can be bad tempered behaviour, which is very upsetting, of course, to staff who they say are just trying to do a day's work and look they acknowledge they know it's so busy particularly at the moment and they know it can be frustrating for patients if they can't get the appointment or the slot they want but they point out that everybody in the public system is under pressure and it's not fair to take it on them, out on them and their colleagues and they try to see around 200 patients a day there. So here Laura and Denise from that clinic team describe the pressures of managing the clinic. First thing in the morning there was queues at the door. I'd get here at 20 past seven and there could be six, seven people in the queue. So it was very, very busy, really crazy. We don't want to see them in the cold, so we will open the door and let them in. Most of the people are lovely, but the girls get a really bad time. What, people who are frustrated, they want to get in? Frustrated, they want an appointment. We have 80 or 90 slots, or probably more, that you can walk in and get on the day. But generally, the girls are amazing. They work really hard. We, We also squeeze a lot of people in during the day so I feel people are well looked after but I think people are like frustrated if they don't get the time they want or they don't get the doctor they want and they sort of take it out on the girls Would this always have been part of the work that thing of patients maybe having a go being annoyed? In general people are really nice but there is the minority and I think dealing with cross patients dealing with it's everywhere it's not just here Very stressful 
Very Why? stressful. So the mornings, you come around the corner and there is a queue right down as far as the pharmacy. So your working day starts with a queue? With a queue. It is relentless. And you get verbal? Oh God, yeah. From people? Oh, we would. If you're sick and you need to see a doctor and it is, sorry, there's no appointments left. I get that. But we're only human as well. Most of our patients are great and they're understanding. There is the minority there that there's no rationing with them. And how rude to people? Very rude. Thank God not not that often, but we would have had really threatening behaviour. Wait, I see you on the outside and la la la. No, not often, but it does happen. Somebody has said that to me. Oh God, yeah, they have now. As I say, you have to grow a very thick skin. So patients have harassed you? Oh gosh, yeah. Now not only me, the team, yeah. Now we have patients and they're gorgeous, but that minority of them can be very volatile. Say what, how dare you, who think you are, that kind of stuff? Oh, they'll curse, they'll stamp, they'll shout, they'll slap the desk. You just never know what today is going to bring. That's Laura and Denise from the Ellsbury Clinic in Tala ending Evelyn O'Rourke's report on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Prompted by yesterday's stories of dangerous driving, Denise spoke to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line. What happened to you, Denise? Um, Joe, I was walking home and um, coming down the road just about to cross at uh, Stevens Green and a car came from nowhere and knocked me flying. Wow. Almost killed me. I lay on the road with multiple injuries from what happened and my husband was with me at the time. He was my boyfriend then. Okay. And uh, he he was trying to, to grab me from the car, but it was too late. I took the full impact of the car and had me and up over the bonnet and left me with multiple injuries, Joe. And Denise, just tell us, what time of day was it and exactly where was it? It was in the evening time, Joe. It was about half ten at night. Okay, and this was Coming May. Back from the, Harcourt Street. The end of May, okay. Yeah. We come back from Harcourt Street at a late night shop. I had milk and a packet of crisps. Okay. And uh, we were coming down the road, holding hands, and went across the road, pressed the button. The green man was there. Yeah. We went across the road, and just before we got to the footpath, Joe, the car came from nowhere. And, and did you flying. And Denise, did you hear her coming or see I it coming? No, Joe, I didn't even hear the, the car coming. Wow. It just came from nowhere. And what direction was... Was he coming from the from Stevens Green or Harcourt Street? He, he'd have been coming up from um, the Stevens Green area. Okay, so he would have headed off where? Um, towards Kevin Street okay, area. Okay, across the top of New Street. Street. Yeah, up okay. that way. Yeah. So, as, as far as I presume, yeah. And you didn't realise anything until you f- do. You even do you remember the impact given the the seriousness no, of your injury? No, Joe. I was instantly blanked. Wow. I didn't hear nothing. All I remember was being resuscitated in um, the Maid Hospital. Which is around, and, uh, that's gone since, yeah. This was, yeah, well yeah. gone since then, Joe. And, and what do you mean resuscitated? Were you dead? Yeah, I was dead, Joe. They resuscitated me five times. And uh, I, I remember just hearing a, a, a massive shout from a doctor saying, We have a breath! We have a breath! And then I, I just remember... Uh, coming out with a big breath, Joe, and yeah. I was alive, and I could just hear, "We have her, we have her," and that was it. And I just kind of faded in and out of consciousness after that, Joe. And how long were you in hospital for, Denise? Well, 
I was in hospital, uh, three hospitals, Joe. I was in the maid. Yeah. I was in and then I was in the Clontar orthopaedic. Oh yeah, yeah, for And the whole thing went on for over two years. Good God. For rehabilitation. Learn how to walk again. Um so you're two years in the hospital, you're knocked yes. down. Um yeah. and did did anyone identify the car? Anyone see the car? Um my husband just got a glimpse of the back of the car as it was speeding away, I suppose. It was a white coloured um car. Um Oh. He, he'll be able to tell you more about it. Okay, and was there CCTV in those? It was 96. Well, not in those days, Joe. There wasn't really much CCTV around that area. The police and went and done a check. They had a look and they didn't see any CCTV around there. And do you think, Denise, looking back on it, and I'll talk to you now about your current situation, but do you think looking back on it, his car was damaged? Well, it'd have to be in the front, Joe, because... I took yeah. a good belt off that yeah. and it, it lifted me over the bonnet and landed me on the other side. Like So the car was free to drive away then, if you, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I've just wondered, was her was there headlight broken? or? I'd the, say there would have been. Yeah, I think there was glass on the road. Yeah. There was pieces of red glass around the area. And Denise, uh, Denise what, what's your situation now? Um, nothing, Joe. Well, what are your injuries now? Well, they're ongoing, Joe. I yeah. have um, osteoarthritis in both of my legs. Oh, God. Um, I find it hard to walk. Uh, I fall over a lot. Loss of balance. Yeah. I'm a trip hazard. Um, my husband takes care of me, so protects me from half of the stuff that I may fall over and hurt myself. Um, basically, nothing, Joe. I can't get on with my life anymore. Oh, good it, it, It's kind of oh, it, it stopped, if I can say that. It, it, it's just me existing from now, Joe. Like, there's nothing. Like, I can't go out and do the things that I used to do. I can't be the woman that I always wanted to be. Yeah. I can't be the mother that I wanted to be because all, all them options were taken away from me due to this. Broke me heart. I've been to psychiatrists. Uh, yeah. had counselling. None of that ever worked, Joe. It was just a talk for an hour or so and then you go back and deal with it again and yeah. it doesn't go away. You wake up with it, you go to bed with it. That's Denise, a victim of a hit-and-run driver, talking to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line. Dentists tell us that getting our children's teeth checked regularly can prevent dental difficulties down the line. But getting little Liam or Aoife to sit on the big swivel chair can be challenging for parents. Dr Abigail Moore is the founder of Happy Teeth, a specialist paediatric dental practice that aims to make visits to the dentist less fraught for children and their parents. She spoke to Claire Byrne this morning. And we were talking yesterday on the programme when we were saying you were coming in about the difficulty getting your child to that first visit because Mm -hmm. it can be quite frightening for them. Yes, yes, of course. And, you know, for children, the unknown is always is always difficult for them. So for us as parents, the most important thing is to prepare them really well, because if a child is prepared, they're going to be and they're going to be really open to things. 
So I would always recommend um, chatting to them about the visit, obviously, and maybe showing them online where they're going, the, the, the building, outside the building, the dentist, show them the name, show them a little video. Like there's a brilliant little video called Daniel Goes to the Dentist. It's fantastic. There's great books out there, Peppa Pig books, things like that. Um, and actually a really powerful experience for a child is to see you yourself going to the dentist. So what's better than going with your mom or dad for the first time to the dentist and watching them having a great experience and leaving alive and happy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just that's just the best. And and again, your advice is to take your child when they're really young so yeah. that it's not a big surprise when they're yeah. three or four. That's it, absolutely. And, and you know, I'm not, I don't want everyone to think, oh gosh, we've got to bring our child, make them their own appointment, age one. But if they can get in through the door of the dentist with somebody, with a sibling, with a parent, and they can learn about the environment, but also it means that parents are, are getting all this education really early before things can go wrong. Mm-hmm. So um, if, if parents can get advice on, you know, bottles and soothers and diet and drinks and all that stuff early on, then we're trying to prevent stuff from happening. So it's not all about thinking of the dentist as being somewhere you go for treatment. It's about preventing things. Yeah, you reminded me now of when you were last in and you said yeah. about the juice and we all had to go home and get rid of the, the juice in the fridge. You, you don't want that near our, our children's teeth. Yeah, absolutely. Milk and water, you know. And my, I, I get accused of ruining everything, but yeah, milk and water only. Milk and water. Now, um, for children with sensory issues, the, the parents and the dentist can work together to help with that, can't they? What the, should they do? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it, you know, just the same thing, you know, about preparation is key. There's fantastic social stories out there available. Twinkle has a really good social story for going to the dentist for children, you know, with autism. And again, showing pictures of the visit, describing the location. And also, like, what's really important for us as a team is if somebody has a child with additional needs and they ring up and say, Do you know what, you know, uh, they really don't like, you know, being able to see out the window. They don't like bright lights. They don't like the radio. They don't like smells. Um, you know, we often have a patient who doesn't like their name being shortened or, you know, things like that. So if we're prepped as a team, we can have little notes on our chart. And we know that when the child comes in, we want the radio off, the blinds down, maybe some special music on, you know, so we can we can prepare and work together. To so that's about communication, isn't yeah, it, really? absolutely, yeah. Uh, let's uh, get to some of our questions now. I have a two-year-old who refuses to let us brush his teeth. I've heard about this uh, quite a lot from, from friends. He closes his mouth or starts screaming when we try to brush them. Sometimes we can distract him enough to get his teeth brushed, but it's really difficult. What yeah. advice do you have? I mean, this is just really so hard for parents, you know, and you have to choose your battles, but this is a battle you have to choose, you know, because the most important thing is to get the toothbrush and the toothpaste in there twice a day. Doesn't matter, you know, how sort of quality the brush is and it doesn't matter how fast it is, but just getting the toothpaste in there. So I suppose the best thing is to be, is to, is to you know, back yourself. It has to be done. It's a bit like getting the nappy change. That has to be done too. Um, so um, back yourself, be confident and maybe sort of get yourself set up nicely. A really nice thing to do might be to have another person to help you. Like I know that's not always possible, but if you did, um, that you could do like row, row, row the boat and sort of lean back onto someone else's lap, count to five with the brush, sit up again, have a hug and then go again. Row, row, row the boat, you know. Um, the other thing might be to let them watch an iPad or a phone, you know, do it in front of the telly. Doesn't matter, doesn't have to be done in the bathroom. You know, it can be done lying on the bed, playing with a toy. Um, but And have yourself ready, you know, have your toothbrush loaded with the toothpaste, um, and and um, have all your sort of different paraphernalia ready for distraction. Okay. Distraction, but, all but, the way. but you know, I can't, I can't say we don't need to do it because it's so you have important. To do it. Yeah, so important. Have you seen? I'm sure you have. Um, lots of different toothpastes out there for mm-hmm. small children, and some of them are 
not minty. They're strawberry flavoured or yeah. fruity flavoured. How do you feel about those? Are they still doing the job? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't really matter what brand of toothpaste it is. It doesn't matter what flavour it is. In fact, a lot of children will do better if they have a flavour free or a nice flavoured toothpaste. The only thing that's really important is after two that there's fluoride in the toothpaste. And we don't recommend it before two because we have fluoride in our water. So that it's not necessary. It's not recommended. But if you just look at the ingredients at the back of the toothpaste, it needs to say sodium fluoride, 1,450 ppm. If it says that, you're good to go. Good to go. Okay, this listener has a five-year-old daughter and they've never brought her to the dentist. Her teeth are starting to fall out, our baby teeth, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming. Do (laughs) Do I need to bring her to make sure that all is okay with her adult teeth? Yeah, so that's a really good question question because I bet you lots of people at home are like nodding their heads, you know. So so first of all, she's absolutely right. The teeth are starting to fall out, but only the front ones. So at about, at about five or six, you might start losing the front ones. Um, but remember the back teeth, those back primary teeth are going to stay there till they're 12. So five to 12 is a lot of years for those to, to go, you know, for those to get tr- trouble. Also, we need to think about the fact that um, from two and a half or three, you have 20 teeth so by five, you've had 20 teeth in there for two years and no one's looked at them. And the unfortunate fact is that um, one in three of our, our, our Irish five-year-olds, our children, have got a visible cavity. And that's really shocking. And also about 10% of our Irish five-year-olds, or all our children, have got, could have an enamel defect, which means that their teeth have come up and they're not fully hardened. They're a bit more prone to decay. So those children are very high risk. So by the age of five, um, we've had two years of potentially decay being there and um, this enamel, an enamel defect going. Um, going. How do you, you know, prevent that, the enamel defect, can you? No, we can't prevent it. But you know what? If it's picked up early, it's so easy to manage, mm-hmm. you know. But if it's picked up late, that's, you know, that's what we're trying to avoid. You know, we're trying to, because those teeth are weaker and they get cavities that spread quickly and you can end up in pain and problems quite quickly with those. That's Dr. Abigail Moore, founder of Happy Teeth, a specialist paediatric dental service, answering listener questions on Today with Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time, thank you for listening. And good luck.